in verse 20, and Lord willing, time willing, getting through the rest of Mark chapter 3. Let's pray. Lord, you, you wrote it. We pray that you teach it. Your Holy Spirit would lead, guide, and direct. Right now, we just want to stop and just think of Judy and pray your hand of health to be upon her in all ways and all things, and Woody as well, and family for wisdom and guidance and direction. And Lord, also a lot of sickness, just a lot of sickness going around. I know there's numerous people in the body really battling. Pray your hand of health to be upon them. But right here, right now, we pray you are glorified. We pray that your word is a taught to equip the saints. And Lord, that your just love and your grace and your gospel is represented in your name. Amen. Let's start in 20. And we're actually going to go all the way through the 35 to read the whole thing. I think it's important to get the entire context of it. And then we'll come back and we'll break this down. Verse 20, it says, Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so as much eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Surely I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him, and a multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. A lot of different things going on here, and I think it's important to get the entire context of it. Let's just start right back at the beginning. Verse 20. So busy that they could not even find time to eat. So busy, they couldn't even find time to eat. This is not the first time this is going to happen. In a couple of chapters here, Mark chapter 6, same thing is happening. They're so busy in ministry that they don't even have time to sit down and eat a meal. So busy in ministry. What a good problem to have, <laughs> to be so busy that you don't even have time to eat. And when I say busy, I'm saying busy in ministry because some of you are so busy in life you don't have time to eat. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in eternal things where you're stopping saying, Lord, I'm so focused on you and just ministry that I'm not even really thinking about food. This, this idea of food that just drives us, just drives us to eat and eat more. Imagine being just so focused on the kingdom and the kingdom work that's almost like there's not even enough time to eat. What a good problem to have. How many of us just eat again and again and again out of boredom? Imagine defeating boredom by saying, you know what, I want to be busy about the work of God, so I'll be so busy serving the Lord that I, I forgot to eat supper tonight. What a good thing. Jesus talks about this a little bit. In John chapter 4, you can look there later, but he says it is the food of God to do his will. What a neat idea, that it's the will of God is like food to him. Meaning that I am satisfied doing God's will. As much as you can imagine a meal that just completely, utterly satisfies you and you just kind of dream about it and think about it. This idea of doing God's will so ultimately fulfills you that you walk away from serving God as completely, utterly satisfied. What a neat concept to have. And I just wonder if all the time we have, 
that we could stop and say, wow, Lord, what a good problem to have. I'm so busy serving you that there's not even enough time to grab a bite right now. What a neat blessing that would be. So, what's happening, though? There's this huge multitude following him. And verse 21 is a really interesting verse. His own people hear about it, and they go to lay hold of him. He's crazy. That's what they're saying. He's out of his mind. He's crazy. Who is own people? It looks like this should maybe be some extended family, some friends of people that he grew up with. They heard about the ministry. Heard about how Jesus has kind of taken off here, if you will, and the multitudes are following him. So his extended family, his friends show up and they say, where is he at? Obviously, Jesus forgot who he was. He's just a carpenter from Nazareth. I don't know where he's got this delusions of grandeur. And so verse 21, we're coming here to literally take him by force, to lay hands on him, because he is crazy. Think about that for a second. That's what the people thought of Jesus that knew him. See, I think sometimes when we envision this picture of Jesus, we almost envision this um, artwork from like the Renaissance where Christ always was glowing or something like that. He was such a normal guy. And so therefore, he grew up with these people. He worked as a carpenter. He grew up around them. And so when he went into his public ministry at age 30, I think it was difficult for some people to stop and say, this guy is the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. He's crazy. Have you ever run into that? Everyone in your family thinks you're crazy the deeper you go in Jesus Christ? I've seen that with lots of people. The deeper you go into the Lord, the more people think you really utterly have lost your mind. And to the world, you are crazy. Until they are born again, until their eyes are open, they are not going to get it in any way whatsoever. And I just want to encourage you right now, if you're here tonight and you're saved and you've got extended family members or friends and they're not saved and you are really honestly worked up of why don't they get it, why don't they see it, don't waste your time on that. Until they get their eyes open, until they're born again in the Lord, they're not going to fully understand it or get it. I heard a pastor say one time, trying to explain, trying to explain what salvation has done for you to a non-believer, when their eyes aren't open, it's like trying to explain colors to a blind person. They just, they're not going to get it. Their eyes are so completely, utterly blinded. They're walking in darkness. I want to build on this for a second. Can you go with me to John real quick? Just John chapter 1. You're going to see a theme here tonight. Dealing with family. I'm willing to bet a lot of the issues that you guys deal with probably are people that are relatives of yours. And you're going to see how Jesus handled this. First, you see his extended family and friends coming and saying, he's crazy. You've been called crazy the deeper you go in the Lord. Well, why don't they get it? Look at John 1, starting verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Obviously talking about Jesus. In him was life, and the life was in the light of men. Look at verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Some translations say overcome it. It means this idea of they didn't get it. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. If you have extended family members or even close family members, and you're talking to them, and you're like, why don't they get it? Right there, James 1, excuse me, John 1, 5. The darkness cannot comprehend it. Until their eyes are open, they're going to look at you as being a religious fanatic, taking it too far. Can't you just be content with just lukewarm Christianity like everybody else? I heard a pastor one time coin this phrase, and I absolutely love it. He was talking about how most people in America that claim to be Christians, they're lukewarm and they love it. This idea of lukewarm and loving it. 
That's the typical person you're going to run into. They don't really have a problem with church. They don't really have a problem with morality. They don't really have a problem with you going to church. Hey, it's good. I'm glad you don't drink as much. I'm glad you don't cuss as much. Glad you're reading your Bible a little bit more. Don't take it too far. Here's the thing. We're going to take it too far. That's the whole point of being radical for who what Jesus is. And so his own people are coming to lay hands on him to say he is out of his mind. Guys, the darkness is not going to comprehend it. You pray for their eyes to be open, but until their eyes are open, they're not going to get it. And not only that, you got the official people coming down from Jerusalem in 22, the scribes. These were the religious lawyers of the day. They were experts in the word. Jerusalem had heard about what Jesus was doing here around Galilee. They sent some official people to them and say, listen, we got to check this Jesus guy out and make sure he's on the up and up. So the scribes show up, and their conclusion is this. They've analyzed, they've looked at him, they've seen it, seen what he's done. They come to this conclusion, he's possessed by Satan. That's their conclusion. So Jesus' friends and family members say he's crazy. The official report of Jerusalem is he's possessed. That's how they're dealing with it. They call him Beelzebub, 22. Beelzebub's a really interesting word. It's a name for Satan. It literally means Lord of the house. Meaning that Satan is the prince of demons. He's the head of the entire house of the family of demons. The Jews switched it up a little bit, the pronunciation of it, because this really wasn't a Hebrew word. And they kind of turned it to being Lord of the flies, Lord of the dung. They kind of put it down a little bit. Some of the false religions would actually take gold and make gold images of flies. To worship Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies, the Lord of the dung. What a strange little thing that idolatry can become. But by them calling him Beelzebub, they're basically saying it's not that just he's possessed. He's basically like Satan in the flesh. Think about this for a second. The people you grew up with, possibly family members, are so concerned about you, they're calling you crazy. And then the official religious rulers of the day come up and see what you're doing, casting out demons, healing people, and their conclusion is this, yeah, you're possessed by Satan. That's what they were saying about Jesus. And not only that, I was reading one commentator, he made a list of everything that people said about Jesus. And I just want you to think for a second, and maybe you have not experienced this, maybe you have. But maybe after you got saved and you have a lot of unsafe friends and family members and they just don't get it. I'm going to go back to that point. The darkness cannot comprehend it. They, they have, they've tried to say things about what's happening in your life and your walk. This is what they said about Jesus. John 10, he has a demon and he's crazy. Why do you listen to him? John 8, you're a Samaritan and have a demon. Remember, calling Jesus a Samaritan was insulting him. John 8, that he was born of fornication. They're kind of doubting his little uh, birth story here. Yeah, we all heard this amazing, miraculous birth story, Jesus. Luke 7, you're a glutton, a wine-bibber, friend of tax collectors and sinners. You drink too much, and you eat too much, and you hang out with the wrong people. And flat out in John chapter 7, you have a demon. Please remember what Jesus said and made it very clear. He said, if they say these things about me, they're going to say these things about you. Jesus made it very clear. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. I don't know where we got this mindset from, that I'm going to get saved. And so now that I'm saved, I believe that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. So that means I just offended a couple billion people right then and there. All Muslims are now offended by what I believe. Most of the Middle East is offended by what I believe. Most of the Far East is offended by what I believe. I got a few European countries that will accept what I say and some of North America for the most part. 
So I feel like everybody should like me because all of a sudden I'm a Christian now when I really just offended about three-fourths of the world. And then the people that are left that I live with and work with here in America, I'm now saying Jesus is the only way they should love me for this, but now I'm going to go represent light and darkness, and I'm going to preach them repentance and salvation and works, and I'm going to show them this idea here of morality and truth. And guess what? I'm going to shine light in the darkness of their life, and they're going to be convicted. I think they're still going to love me. No, they're going to hate you. They're not going to want to talk to you. They're not going to want to be around you. And Jesus is constantly trying to remind us, listen, if you want a lot of friends, he didn't say it this way, but if you want a lot of friends, don't be a Christian. Don't. If you want a lot of friends, be like a Krishna or something like that. People always love them. Christians don't make friends. Christians are out there to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, and we're going to make enemies. And Jesus made it abundantly clear in the Gospels, do not think I came, bring, came to bring uh, excuse me, peace to this world, but to bring a sword. Jesus says, I cause division. And I think we forget these things when it comes to taking a stand for him. So his extended family friends are saying he's crazy. The religious rulers of the day say he's possessed. How does Jesus respond to this? 23 is pretty logical. How can Satan cast out Satan? You say I'm possessed, and yet I'm casting out demons. How does this make any sense? Verse 24, 25, and 26. If I'm really of Satan... And I am dividing the kingdom of Satan. How is the kingdom of Satan supposed to stand? If I'm dividing Satan's house by casting out demons, how is that house supposed to stand? That doesn't make any sense. He says, what you're saying makes no sense. I'm possessed by Satan, but yet I'm out here causing problems to Satan's kingdom and house. The only logical explanation is that he is the Messiah and God himself. 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he'll plunder his house. Let's explain this parable real quick. Who's the strong man? The strong man is Satan. Satan's strong. Let's, let's not forget that. I, I think we have these two extremes of Satan that we've got to be really careful about here, okay? Extreme number one is giving Satan way too much power. Satan is behind every awful, horrible, bad thing that's ever happened to you and it's always Satan's fault. It just is. That's this, everything is Satan. Everything that happens is Satan. A light bulb goes out and it was Satan. I mean, we've got to be careful with that extreme. The other extreme is to pretend that he doesn't even exist. I don't want to talk about him. It makes me weird. It makes me nervous. I know people that said they wouldn't pray out loud because they don't want Satan to hear it. So let's just pretend. Let's just pretend he doesn't even exist. You've got to be careful with these extremes. Please remember what the Bible makes. And the Bible makes this point abundantly clear. Satan is a created being. And as a created being, he was created by God himself. He's created by Jesus. So therefore, Satan is strong. He has power in this world. This world is under the sway of the wicked one. The Bible makes it clear. The Bible calls Satan the God of this world, the God of this age. So he's strong. But guess what? In 27, Satan can be bound. And that's what you've got to remember. Satan can be bound. How can Satan be bound? I was just making a quick list, and I came up with uh, four different ways here that Satan can be bound. In no particular order, you can bind Satan through prayer. Power of prayer. That's something that we pray. May the enemy be bound. He wants to cause havoc. He wants to cause problems. He wants to harass. So, Lord, we're coming to you, the creator of the universe, the creator of Satan, God, powerful, omnipotent, sovereign. Would you bind the enemy working in this area right now? Number two, how can you bind Satan? By the word of God. Please remember how Jesus 
fought Satan in the temptation in the wilderness. He quoted verses. I cannot stress to you enough. You've got a certain sin area that you're struggling with. Memorize the scriptures. Write out the scriptures. Put the scriptures beside your bed. Pray over them. Meditate over them. There's a power in God's word. Utilize it. Number three, fasting. Jesus made it clear there was certain demonic oppression that did not come out except by fasting and prayer. The, the more I walk with the Lord and the deeper I go with the Lord, the more I realize the power of fasting. It's such a powerful tool that God has given us. I encourage you to do that. And the last one, can you go with me to James chapter 4, please? James chapter 4. James chapter 4, I think, gives us one of the most blunt ways to take care of Satan. James 4, start in verse 7. James 4, verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Well, how straightforward is that, folks? Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Okay, let's break this down. You have an issue in your life that you're really struggling with. Verse 7, have you submitted to God on it? Now, now, before you answer yes, I really want you to think that through. Have you really submitted to God on it? I know a lot of people that say, oh, yeah, I really want to be done with it. Do you? We were at a small group recently, and the one guy was just telling his testimony about how he had some issues in life that he really wanted to let go of. And he said he was praying to the Lord and saying, Lord, I just I want to be done with this. And he really felt like the Lord said, you do? You really want to be done? Oh, yeah, I, Lord, I do. You really feel like the Lord said, no, you don't. That's the Christian thing to pray. And I really thought about that. That's something the Lord's really been laying on my heart. How often I say, oh, Lord, I never want to do this again. But in my heart, I'm like, I kind of like it. I enjoy it. Have I really submitted to God to the point of saying, Lord, I hate this sin like you hate this sin. You died on the cross for this sin. This sin disgusts you. This sin is not welcome in heaven in any way whatsoever, but yet I have allowed it into the temple of my body. So have I submitted to God to say, I really don't want to do this anymore? Number two, have I resisted the devil? Verse seven. Have I done everything I can through the spirit and in this world to say, I don't want to do anything with this? I want to completely be done with this in any way whatsoever. What does that look like? I don't know. Pick a sin. What does it look like to resist it? If you've got a problem, your eyes wandering to things that it shouldn't wander to online, don't go online. You mean, ah, that's extreme. I don't know. Jesus said if your hand offends, they cut it off. We've got to be careful. You've got a problem with drinking? Don't go down the one aisle at Walmart where it's at. It's only in one aisle, guys. One aisle. Don't go down it. Okay? There's a gal at work that's a temptation. Don't talk to her. Well, I have to. Yeah, you need to be polite. You need to be respectful. But you don't need to have long, drawn-out conversations with her. I mean, guys, we can resist the devil. The truth is sometimes we just don't want to resist the devil. And then we wonder, well, why isn't he fleeing? Because you're not resisting him. The word resist there is actually a military term. It's used in Ephesians 6 to talk about the armor of God. Put up a wall like it's a battle and say, I don't want to go anywhere near it. So then what do I do? Verse 8, draw near to God and I'll draw near to you. I had a pastor one time at a pastor's conference talked, said he was talking to guys that dealt with the certain just addictions and just battles they had. And he said this, he goes, listen, are you drawing near to God? Because it's pretty hard to get high while praying. It's pretty hard to be lusting and looking at porn while reading your Bible. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. 
I tell you guys, verses 7 and 8 are pretty straightforward, but the real honesty is most... I shouldn't... I've got to be careful of my wording here. I'm going to probably say all the time. All the time when sin has victory over me, it's because I allow it to have victory over me. The Bible makes it clear that God's not tempting me. It's me. It's my flesh. I want to sin, so therefore I sin. What would happen if I would do verse 7? Submit to God. Resist the devil. He has to flee. It's right there in God's word. What would happen if I draw near to God and he draws near to me? Now, before you guys stop and say, Oh, James, you're making this sound so easy. I'm just trying to tell you what the Bible says. I understand it's a battle. Because as long as I have flesh on these bones, I'm still going to want to sin. That's the reality of the world I live in. But there is answer here. And I tell you, if you want to see the enemy bound in your life, have a prayer, be in God's word, be strong and fasting, and resist. Resist. It's amazing what can happen when you use those tools that God has given you. It is going to be a battle, and it's going to hurt. I tell you guys, it's easier to sin than it is to not sin. It's easier just to give in. It's hard to fight. If you're in a battle right now, and you've got sin in your life, or there's a battle going on in your home or your household, and you want the enemy bound, pray, word, fasting, resist. Put those tools together here and see what happens and see how the Lord uses it. Now, before we get into the next section here, we'll stop real quick. Any quick questions over anything thus far on who Beelzebub is, the people coming to Jesus, um, friends and family thinking we're crazy there, uh, this idea of resisting. Any quick questions? Yes. problem is fully grasping that concept of understanding the righteousness of God. And that is hard. You know, righteousness just needs to be made right. And I am made right in, in the Lord. In fact, there's a great verse in Romans where Paul says, I'm already glorified. I sure don't feel glorified. But in the eyes of God, it is. I'm sanctified, righteous. It's amazing. I think a chapter to really chew on. If you're here tonight and you get that you're saved, but yet you don't understand this victory that we can have in sin and sin keeps winning i really encourage you to go read romans 6 and 7 romans 6 will lay the foundation that you're dead that you're dead to sin and then romans 7 brings out the practical life application of if i'm dead to sin why does it keep happening let's just go there go with me to romans 7 that's such a good chapter because i don't want someone walking out of this study tonight saying okay well, I guess if I sin, I'm not really saved. No, I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying, are we really resisting? Are we really wanting the enemy bound in our lives? So often I think we accept sin and we just kind of say, that's who I am. I'm still a work in progress. We've got to be careful with those things. Go to Romans 7. Um, I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation. I love how the New Living Translation reads Romans 7. Let's start uh, middle of verse 14, please. Romans 7, middle of verse 14, New Living Translation. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. 
But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm really not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart. But there's another power within me that it's a war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. What an honest passage of Scripture. Now, here's the problem, though. A lot of us stop at 24. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And we just stop right there. Oh, woe is me. I'm never going to have victory over this. Woe is me. My life is miserable. Just walk around in misery. Good golly, look at 25. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. He frees us. He frees us from the power of sin. And I encourage you to really spend some time in Romans 6 and Romans 7. Romans 6 is going to theologically tell you that you're dead. And you can't tempt a dead man. You can't. You can't. When a man is, tempt, is dead, he can't be tempted. Go to any cemetery. Try to tempt him. It won't work, okay? They're dead. The problem is, until you realize you're dead, you're always going to walk in this idea of sin. And sometimes I'm praying, reminding, I'm dead. Lord, remind me that I'm dead to that sin because I don't really feel dead right now. I feel really alive to that sin. And then when I remind myself I'm dead, I also got to then go into Romans 7 and remind myself it's going to be an ongoing battle to the day I die. But thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. The enemy can be bound through prayer, through the word, through fasting, through resisting, and remembering the righteousness of what Christ has given us, that I'm made right through Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thing that is. Yeah, Lynette. I'm adding that one. That's now point number five. It's on my sheet. I meant to mention it. I just forgot to. Yes. Uh, <laughs> praise and worship. No, seriously, that is a very good one. Um, that's a very good one because when our mind is praising and worshiping in the middle of the storm, it gets our focus on the Lord. And a lot of, I've had people over the years tell me how difficult that is. I understand. That's why Hebrews calls it bring the sacrifice of praise. I am sacrificing thinking about woe is me and how big my problems are. And I'm stopping thinking about how big God is. Boy, praise and worship, that's a good one. Thanks, Lynette. All right. So now, get to a really fascinating verse, 28 and 29. As surely I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemes they may have uttered. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. This is known as the unforgivable sin. There is one sin that's not forgivable. Everything else can be utterly forgiven. That's, that's really hard for some people. The idea that any sin can be forgiven. Except one, and we'll get to the one here in a little bit. Years ago, gosh, it's probably been now be pushing close to 20 years ago, we were doing a discipleship in the back of the church. And one of the first lessons in discipleship was this understanding of the beauty and the grace and mercy of Christ, how he just forgives us of our sins. It's amazing. And there was a young man here that had been through a lot in his life. 
I mean, he'd been through a lot. And so we're talking about how anything can be forgiven. So he brought up some of the things that have happened to him in his life and some of the things that people have done. And, and he said, those people can't be forgiven. But they can. They can be forgiven. He got so angry and upset, he left the church and walked, literally physically left and walked back to Hamler because the person he rode with wasn't leaving yet. He was so angry, he did not want to hear that people can be forgiven. I've had people over the years tell me awful, horrible things, that they want people to go to hell. That's an awful, horrible thing. That they say, don't even pray for this person, don't even do that. No, 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 no. Anything can be forgiven. That's the beauty of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. We have to remember that. But there's one unforgivable sin, and that other forgivable sin is called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? You have to remember what Jesus said in John 16. The Holy Spirit comes to speak to the world conviction. The Holy Spirit speaks conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's the Holy Spirit's job to speak to my heart, to say, before I got saved, to say, James, you're a sinner. Too often we present the gospel as this. Jesus loves you and he wants you to be happy. Jesus did not die on the cross for my sins. Excuse me, Jesus did not cry on the <laughs> That's not good theologically speaking. Jesus did not die on the cross for me to be happy. He died on the cross for my sins. You've got to remember that. Please don't present the gospel as this idea of, does God want you to be happy? God wants you to be forgiven. And so for me to be forgiven, that means I have to understand that I've sinned and I'm wrong. And for me to understand that I've sinned and wrong, that means I have to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. And that means I need to understand that Jesus is God. He's Savior. I have to understand all of that, that... God came down as man and died for my sins. That's what the Holy Spirit is speaking to me. If I reject that, that's the unforgivable sin. I'm rejecting the Holy Spirit speaking to my heart, telling me that Jesus is the only way to be saved. How can I be forgiven for that? I have no forgiveness because I'm rejecting Christ. I'm rejecting his salvation. And this is why Jesus brings this up now. He's saying, you said that I have a demon. You're rejecting me as God. You're rejecting me as Messiah. You're rejecting me. That's unforgivable. Any other sin can be forgiven, but rejecting Jesus Christ is unforgivable. That is why it's so vitally important for us as Christians to make sure we understand what the gospel is and present that gospel to the world. Listen, I want people to come to know who Jesus Christ is and for them to be saved by having their sins forgiven for what Jesus did on the cross. It's not my job to go out there and make the world happy and make the world more blessed and make the world believe in the existence of a God. Listen, almost every major world religion believes in the existence of a God. I want people to understand and know who Jesus Christ is. That is what the Holy Spirit's convicting the world of. And to reject that, to reject that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because you're basically saying, Holy Spirit, I'm ignoring you. I'm not listening to you. I don't care what you have to say and I'm not accepting what you said about my sin in Jesus Christ. And that's unforgivable. That's a very serious thing. So if you're here tonight, you're here tonight and you have heard the Holy Spirit speak to you saying, Jesus is real. Jesus is true. He died on the cross for your sins and there's no other way for you to get to heaven other than to Jesus Christ. And you reject that. You're going to hell. And when I go present that gospel message to the world and I say to them those truths that Jesus is the only way to have your sins forgiven and you must believe that, repent, and accept that, and they reject that, that's unforgivable. Now, that doesn't mean it's always unforgivable because guess what? When you believe it, you're forgiven. 
Probably everybody in this room at one time or another has rejected that idea. But when you got saved, your eyes are open. And you really realize it. And it's like, oh, wow, Lord, you are God. You are Savior. You are salvation. And I believe. Please understand what it is. It's not just you sitting here one time saying, I wonder and I doubt about this or that. No, no. It's saying, I reject who Jesus is. And what a dangerous, dangerous place to be that is. Let's move on here. Because 31 gets us into something interesting. Verse 31. His brothers and his mother come to him. Now, I'm not trying to start a debate here, because to me there is no debate. Uh, I do not believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. That's not biblical. Um, Mary had other kids. In fact, we know their names. According to Matthew 13, uh, one was named James, one was named Joseph, one was named Simon, one was named Judas. Next verse says that Jesus also had sisters. So this idea of Mary being a perpetual virgin is not in the Bible, and it's not doctrinally sound. So Jesus had brothers and sisters. So now his brothers and sisters come to him in verse 31, and now it's his immediate family. There's so many people in 31, they can't get to him, so they're calling out to him. This is interesting to me. Jesus here, he's the oldest, early 30s at this time. His mother's there. His brothers are there. Like I said, in other passages, his sisters are around. Hey, Jesus, 32, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. This, this response is absolutely fascinating. Who is my mother or my brothers? Here are my mother and my brothers. Forever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Jesus said, I'm not interested in physical blood relationships. I'm interested in deep spiritual relationships. Got to remember that, folks. Now, just be careful. Be careful. Don't let these passages say things that they're not saying. He's not putting down physical blood relationships. He's not. We can let that go too far. We can. We got to be careful about that. I need to be careful about that. We all need to be careful about that. That if God has placed you in a family unit, you have a neat opportunity to really be a light and a witness to mother, father, brother, sister, cousins, in-laws. You do. Really neat relationship. But I also see the extreme of where people take their physical blood relationships and it almost becomes an idol to them. And they'll come and they'll say something like this... um, this person is really, really causing problems in my marriage and really causing an issue. And I'd be like, okay, well, who is it? Well, it's my brother, it's my father, it's my mother, it's whatever. Okay, why are you letting them into your marriage and your house? Well, it's my dad, it's my mom. Who cares? They're causing an issue? You've got to be careful about that. Now, if they're a widow, you have a biblical responsibility there. That's biblical. But I'm telling you, sometimes I think we've got to be careful about physical blood relationships of elevating them to a stature that's really not supposed to be there. If they're not saved, you want to be a light and a witness to them. If they don't know Jesus, you want to share Christ to them. But just be careful that you just don't allow someone in causing harm into your life just because they happen to be a blood relative. I said there's extremes. There's the one extreme of ignoring it, and there's the other extreme of elevating it. I like Jesus right here. Who is my mother or my brothers? Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus said the spiritual relationship is more important than the physical relationship. Some of you probably have physical siblings, maybe parents, that you don't have a relationship with. 
you're closer to the people in the body of Christ that you are. Some of you may have a mother or a father, just to be completely honest, is an awful, horrible person. And it's really hard to have a relationship with them. Let the Lord lead on that. God may call you to be a light and a witness. I know that God is not calling you to harbor unforgiveness towards them. God also may be saying, listen, you need to let that relationship go. Let the Lord lead. But I'm telling you right now, what you need to focus on is exactly what Jesus focuses on, verse 35. Whoever does the will of God. That's the relationships we want to really grow in and go with. And I know that's hard for some of you to hear. But the reality is, Jesus' emphasis was never on the physical blood. Jesus' emphasis was on spiritual relationships. Jesus had some neat things to say about spiritual relationships. Pretty sure that everybody here tonight is not Jewish. So therefore, how are we supposed to have this closeness to Christ? Jesus said in John 15 that he calls us his friend. You ever think about that? We're the friend of Jesus. Romans 8 says that we're a co-heir with Christ. We get to share the inheritance with Jesus Christ. Book of Revelation says that we're the bride of Christ, showing a closeness in that relationship right there. Guys, that's amazing. Your friend is God. Your friend is God. You're a co-heir. Your inheritance is everything Jesus gets. And the closeness that you have with your spouse is the same closeness you can have with Jesus Christ. Folks, that's better than any physical blood relationship you can have anywhere. Please understand that and understand the blessing of that. Because if you're here tonight and your physical family is falling apart, aren't you glad you got a spiritual family? What a blessing that is, is to understand what it means to be part of the body of Christ in the family. And I just absolutely love Jesus' response right there. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. There's times that we'll go out and we'll do some outreach stuff and we have these relationships we build with people and they're very quick relationships. Like if we go up to Dearborn and do some of the ministry up there, we'll see people and there's maybe we only see them once a year or maybe we only serve with them for a day. But it just amazes me how when you meet them, they're born again and saved, you're born again and saved, you're automatically click. It's just this amazing relationship. We have the same parents, and we didn't even know it. We have the same spouse. We didn't even know it. I know like it's a little weird, but you understand what I'm trying to say here. There's this immediate clicking, and I've met people through the body of Christ, and it's like, man, I feel like we could be best friends, and we've only known each other for a few minutes because we just automatically agree on eternity and doctrine and heaven and hell and morality, just, just like that. It's amazing. Look at 35 one more time. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. What a neat, neat passage that is to dwell on and to really pray about and to really think about right there. Hey, almost 8 o'clock here. We've got to finish up. Uh, any final questions about anything that we covered here tonight? Mark. Koine is a good word there. First uh, John, if you weren't with us through our study in First John, where it talks about fellowship, especially it talks about the idea of koine. It's a Greek word there, and it shows this oneness, this family relationship we can have as the body of Christ. And it, to me, it kind of continues this theme that we mentioned on Sunday a little bit. 
We have to remember what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. It's more than just one hour, one day a week, guys. There is a relationship building of accountability and prayer request and love and being there for each other. Um, you know, one of the verses the Lord has really just been laying on my heart here lately and just, just been praying about it, saying, Lord, what, is, what does it look like? It's the Acts 2.42, the very famous verse, where it says, The early church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. This idea, this fellowship that we're supposed to have as the body of Christ. And I just really encourage you, um, if that's something you're not used to and that's something that seems really awkward to you, realize the blessing that comes out of that. Just remember that there. The called to be the body of Christ, to be one with each other. That encouragement, that accountability, that fellowship, what a blessing it is. Um, really just need to stop and look at what Jesus elevated, that idea of spiritual relationships. Boy, what a blessing that is. Anybody else have any final questions here about anything before we close up? All right, hey, could you stand with me while we pray? Lord, I just want to think right now, pray right now for those that are bound. Bound in sin. Bound by the enemy. Lord, help us to realize Romans 6, we're dead. Then help us to realize Romans 7, what a wretched, miserable man I am. Who will save me from this? Jesus Christ, Lord. If there's people here that have problems in their homes, in their lives, in purity, in thought, in deed, in relationships, I pray that the enemy could be bound. Lord, bound by your word, bound by prayer, bound, Lord, by the Holy Spirit, the Creator. Lord, bound just through praise and worship and bound through resisting and fasting. Thank you, Lord, for that. Lord, help us to go out and represent your gospel, the true conviction of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And Lord, thank you. Thank you for these spiritual relationships we can have that are so deep and we want to do the will of God. Thank you, Lord. And we give you Judy once again, too. We wanted to pray for her in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you want to take some time, anybody that feels led, you can come up here and pray for Judy with that, and we'll make sure that gets delivered to her. Hey, you guys have a good week, and God bless.